The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us are brought up to believe that we're independent innovators, that if we want to make something of ourselves or to solve a problem, we just have to come up with the solution to imagine the next big thing, to hunker down and figure out the problem on our own. Many of us see ourselves as innovators or creators capable of creating something new for the world. It's why shows like Dragon's Den and Shark Tank prosper, why hundreds of thousands of new companies are formed each year, and why millions of people like me create podcasts. But true innovation is much rarer than we think. My guest today shares a fascinating analysis of innovation in his book, Evolutionary Ideas. A team of engineers reviewed 200,000 of the world's most successful patents and then categorised all of these patents into different degrees of inventiveness and uniqueness. Incredibly, despite reviewing inventions that have all received legal patents, they found that 95% of the problems that engineers had faced and were solving, well, these problems had already been solved within their industry. See, roughly a third, 32% of the patents were deemed to be obvious solutions with no real innovation. Almost half, 45%, were considered to be small improvements to an existing system. And the one-fifth, 18%, were categorised as significantly improving, but only on an existing system. And about 5% of the innovations were described as solutions, but they were already found in science and just not in technology. The highest classification of innovation was only given to 1% of the patents analysed. Only 1% of these highly successful patents were considered true innovations. In other words, coming up with something completely new is extremely difficult. And if we want to solve a problem and come up with a solution, well, we're best off exploring adjacent fields and looking for solutions to copy. What do I mean by this? Well, for a railway engineer, that might mean looking at an owl's wings to figure out how to make your train more aerodynamic. And for a marketer, it might mean looking at a peacock's feathers to understand how signalling works. I appreciate this might sound a little far-fetched, so to help me explain, I'm joined by Sam Tatum. Here's Sam introducing himself. Thanks, Phil. So my name is Sam Tatum. I'm the Global Head of Behavioural Science at Ogilvy. Um, so we're a, a practice that works within the Ogilvy network that lives to bring the world of behavioural science and creativity together to solve some of the most interesting and complex challenges. Uh, and, and I've recently written a book um, called Evolutionary Ideas that, 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 that's launched uh, on the 10th of May this year. Sam's book, Evolutionary Ideas, is all about how problem solving in marketing and business can be improved by taking solutions from other disciplines and applying them to your field of interest. As Global Head of Behaviour Science at Ogilvy, Sam is one of the world leaders at applying behavioural science to business problems. But his first introduction to behavioural science came well before his start at Ogilvy or even his degree in psychology. Here's Sam explaining how he got into behavioural science. 
Um, but but the story is really, I was I was quite young in in, in primary school, so so sort of nine or nine or ten, maybe maybe younger, and uh, we were tasked um, from school to to create a how-to guide. So we needed to come back with a list of of instructions to to make something, and lots of the kids sort of turned up with recipes for cakes or um, different instructions to build ant farms. And I recall just about when, when someone gives you a very sort of open brief and you can create anything in the world, it makes it very hard to think about, about one thing. And I remember speaking to my dad and, and my parents and, and, and asking, so what's, a, what's, what's something I can create a how-to guide for? And dad said, how about you teach people to make a crowd? And obviously that's such an odd an odd concept when you're when you're young. How do you what do you mean? How do you how do you make a crowd? And Dad said, Well, if if you stop and look up, um, then someone behind you will likely stop to see what you're looking at. And if there are two people stopping, next thing you know, there'll be three. And it's a really lovely, intuitive example of how we are wired as as people to go from something that's f- from nothing to something. And I recall that as just a really early example of, of, the, of the magic of human behaviour and how something so small um, can, can create waves. Sam has come a long way since coming up with his psych-inspired how-to guide. After decades in the industry, he's worked with brands like Facebook, Tesco, American Express and Ford to help them apply behavioural science. And through this work, Sam has gained a pretty solid view on how he thinks the best ideas form. He reckons that the best ideas don't come out of thin air. A eureka moment is much rarer than we think. Instead, great ideas come from learning about other areas and applying that knowledge to your problem. Of, of course, so the idea, I mean, the book's called, called Evolutionary Ideas and it's, it's really about how ideas adapt. Um, so, so really, rather than seek sort of revolutionary thinking, an assumption that we need to conjure something the world has ever seen, actually there's a lot of value to be found in in what has evolved around us, what winning solutions remain today um, that may not have undergone a millennia of biological evolution, but but have, have gone through thousands of designers or marketeers or, or, or architects who have, who have toiled to try to solve some of the problems we face right now. There's value to be seen in the ideas and the answers that are already there. What I think we've been missing is a way in which we can identify these uh, these concepts, um, identify these concepts, and then and then replicate them and extend them into foreign worlds. And that's really where the world of behavioural science helps us. So let's start with biological evolution. Sam's got a couple of cracking examples of how looking at an animal's evolution has helped folks solve technical problems. But as a bit of a train nerd, my favourite example of his is the bullet train origin story. Here's how the owl helped inspire the bullet train. Hearing the story was was the, the catalyst for writing the book, to be honest. Um, when I heard about the story of the, the development of the Sheik and Said 500, um, and which is a wonderful example of, of biomimicry. And I, I can talk about sort of biomimicry afterwards. But essentially, the Shinkansen is a stretch of rail that connects Tokyo and Osaka. And when challenged to sort of increase the, the speed or reduce the time that it took between t- Tokyo and Osaka, interestingly, the, the challenge wasn't necessarily a speed challenge. Um, the engineers actually had experimental designs that could, could, could cover the rail and the speed required. 
Um, but the faster the trains the trains went, the more noise that they were creating, and they were sort of reaching decibels out out with the uh, the regulation in in Japan at the time. So it was actually a noise challenge that the engineers were faced with, not necessarily a speed one. Um, and there was one particular gentleman, a gentleman called Ijai Netkatsu, who was the, the, the manager of the West Japan Rail Company at the time, uh, who was sort of charged with this with this project. Uh, and fortunately for this project, while he's a sort of a, a wonderful engineer, he's also a really passionate bird watcher, uh, and had been to previous lectures to see actually how the worlds of aeronautical engineering and 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 bird watching could actually come together to to, to solve collective challenges. So when you sort of break down the challenge that they had on on the on the Shinkansen, they had two two core 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 problems. The, the first was um, coming from a part of the train known as the pantograph. Um, so the pantograph connects the train with the overhead electric wires. And as you imagine, the train's racing at blistering speeds. These sort of pieces of engineering, these sort of structures on top of the train were creating these vortexes of air. I mean, these big vortexes of air um, that these vortexes were producing producing sound. So to help sort of one of the, the, the first sort of engineering focus points was this, this pantograph. And there were two birds um, that actually the, the, the team were inspired by. Um, to help address this, and the first was was an owl, but the reason the owl is is so important here is the owl has evolved over over many thousands of years um, to be able to sort of swoop down and stun its prey in, in sort of it's a nocturnal hunter, and it's able to do this um, in virtual silence because of what's known as micro serrations on its feathers. So if you look under the microscope on, a, on an owl's feathers, you'll see these micro serrations that work to basically chop up these vortexes of air into micro turbulences. So they really dissipate the sound. Um, so by borrowing from the, the owl, the, the team created micro serrations on the pantograph. So they are able to break down these larger vortexes of air that are producing sound into into micro into micro turbulences, micro vortexes. So that's the sort of the, the owl. The second, the second piece of inspiration for the pantograph um, is the Adelie penguin. So if you've ever sort of seen a, a penguin darting around the Atlantic, it's, it's likely a, a, an Adelie. And it's what's known as a spindle shape. If you imagine a bit like a sort of a, a, a rugby ball, the spindle shape of the Adelie um, that sort of helped it to it sort of increase its agility and speed. And again, this shape was deployed on the, on the pantograph. And they found that to be a really successful way of of, of addressing the, the the sort of the, the noise challenges on on the pantograph. So that's that's the sort of the, the first challenge they faced with. But what was probably more significant for the Shinkansen, and in sort of classic evolutionary thinking, we would call this an environmental constraint that the train was faced with, and that's a series of tunnels. Um, that occurs along the Shinkansen. And as the train was going through sort of near 300 kilometers an hour, it produces what's known as a, a tunnel boom. It's a bit like a, firing a bullet from a gun. So it creates this loud bang because of the, the air pressure that's built up behind the, 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 the train through the tunnel. So they needed another solution to, to address this. Um, and again, and rather than sort of thinking about conjuring entirely new physical solutions or looking into sort of the, the annals of engineering, um, they looked to, look to the skies. Um, and the kingfisher was the, the final piece of inspiration. So the kingfisher, again, has evolved perfectly to sort of go from the air into the water, a, a sort of that's 800 times denser than air, to, to, to skewer its prey. Uh, and the team, um, again, sort of wanted to, to, to learn from, from, from the kingfisher and they actually fired a series of different shaped bullets uh, into a chamber. 
Uh, and funnily enough, the, the the bullets that were most effective in in, in cutting this was was um, very similar, near perfectly to the to the kingfisher, um, and and that was the solution for the nose of the the nose of the shinkansen. So it's a lovely example um, of actually looking in un, and sort of spaces that you may not typically look to explore to solve the the challenge of of reducing the speed uh, and staying within the noise regulations in Japan. This wonderful example shows the value of stealing good ideas or copying good ideas from other realms and applying them to your problem. See, no amount of whiteboarding or brainstorming could have solved the problem of the booming noise when entering a tunnel. But a love for birdwatching, well, that did help. And Sam's point is simple. In business, we shouldn't assume that we're any smarter than the folks behind the bullet train. We should do the same. If we want to solve problems and innovate, we're best off leaning on other principles and studying them to find solutions. But Sam says one of the best adjacent fields for business to study isn't biology, it's psychology. Here's why, with examples from Cat's Deli in New York and Sam's favourite coffee shop in Sydney. So if we start with Cat's Deli, I remember this in New York um, as I as I lined up for one of their famous pastrami sandwiches going, this is genius. I mean, even as something as a tip jar um, for, for your listeners, and I can share the image um, as, as well. I mean, perfectly, as you look at the tip jar, they had, they had stacked the notes perfectly to have like 10 at the top and then five in the middle and a one at the bottom. So they're anchoring us. And rather than starting at one and then maybe moving to, to a 10, I mean, this is a, this is a perfectly manicured tip jar that was designed to anchor perceptions on what was an appropriate tip. And without the field of behavioral science, we might not be able to say that is anchoring. Now we can say that's, that's anchoring. And if we shift to the, the regulars wall and, and, and the cafe in Sydney, um, I, I use this as an example of, of social nor- social norming, but but maybe atypical social norming. Oftentimes, we think of social norming in communications. We might think, well, most people switch off their lights after ten pm to save energy for X Y Z. So it's a really sort of quite explicit s- statements. Whereas in this in this cafe, they have what's known as a regulars wall. So it's on a sort of a chalkboard where they have what feels like hundreds of cards just plastered on the wall. So if you're a regular, instead of having to keep it in your wallet, you go and pick it off the wall uh, and then you, you you stamp your card. And it's, I mean, one lens is this is a really practical solution. It uh, means that you don't lose your benefits and you sort of, you keep your incentives and they're safe with, they're safe with us. But the byproduct of that is when you walk into the cafe, you see, well, they've got a lot of people that come here all the time. So it's really a, a subtle way of normalizing patronage. Sure. You can offer loyalty cards. That's what the textbook says. But if you know about psychology, you might decide to stick hundreds of loyalty cards on your cafe wall to showcase your popularity to others. You might know that that would trigger social proof and signal that the cafe does great coffee. Of course, you can chuck a tip jar on your counter or you could position a big $10 note front and centre to anchor tip givers. These wonderful ideas, which by the way you can see pictures of in the show notes, they often aren't found in marketing textbooks. They're only stumbled upon by studying these adjacent fields like psychology. Now we don't know if the sandwich makers at Cats were experts in behavioural science or if they just stumbled upon this solution. But psychology studies show that this idea was a really good idea. The studies cited in Evolutionary Ideas show that when a transparent donation box was filled with a lot of coins, well, people gave a lot of coins. Many small donations were received. However, when the transparent box was filled with fewer larger bills, you know, $5 bills, $10 bills, 
donations that were given were a higher amount. They matched the donations that we, they could see. Essentially, we are immensely observant of the surroundings and we diligently follow cues to do what is expected. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Now let's look at signaling. In behavioral science, signaling is a tool that's used to share information in a non-verbal way. But signaling has been used well before marketers and influencers. In fact, it's far more prominent in the natural world than the business world. Here's Sam explaining signaling. Well, signaling is really important to help disclose otherwise inaccessible information. So in, in nature, we see many different examples of it's it's rich with examples of signaling from the poison arrow frog that's this sort of bright yellow color that's sort of in in detriment to its camouflage helps to signal it's a sort of a costly signal to its its, its safety in one way i mean if if it was delicious <laughs> that would be a very risky strategy um but it's able to actually signal the fact that it's dangerous because of its brazen disregard for its camouflage there's wonderful studies that have looked at actually sort of the correlation between frog toxicity and and luminance. You know, it's a really almost a, like a linear, a linear uh, association. If we look at um, the stotting of a of a springbok, so stotting is a is a is a is a term I came across researching the book. It's basically when a springbok jumps up with with both legs. Um, and we can all imagine this now on sort of the, the sort of the, the blue planet, these springboks sort of pouncing around, and 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 that's really a signal that it's it's young and fit and not worth chasing. You know, and so it's like if I can can do this, so so signals evolve in nature to help access difficult to determine information, like until it's too late. You might eat that frog and find out later that it's toxic, but this can tell you up front. And the same is 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 true for us. There are there are, there are signals that help us to 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 more easily see otherwise unobservable information. Um, so in the book, we look at a, a spectrum of different styles of signals. Um, some that are, that are costly signals that we might see looking at sort of the expensive architecture and investments of banks. You know, and it helps to signal that this is a really, we're, we're not going to run away with your money. and We've got a lot to lose here. There's a, this is a signal of our investment. If we look at engagement rings, another classic example of sort of cost is like it's a, it's a, it's a signal that we're not just going to sort of turn around and walk away in a, in a, in a week. So we can see these, these, these signals that, that sort of pop up throughout, throughout our own lives. Signaling is used throughout nature, from peacock's feathers to frog spots, to showcase information. And as Sam says, it's common throughout our lives, from the grand buildings that banks decide to occupy, to the expensive engagement rings that we give our partners. And it's not new. 
humans have been aware, conscious or subconsciously aware, of the importance of signalling for centuries. To make this point, Sam explained to me why miners decided to bring canaries down the mine shaft when mining. But there are also wonderful examples, again, if we're looking at how we might signal other unobservable information. There are wonderful sorts of canaries in coal mines, right? So so having so canaries, and I sort of learned this through the process, fascinating creatures that actually basically double dose in, 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 in oxygen because they've evolved to fly at such great heights. So actually when they breathe in and breathe out, they're, they're essentially sort of taking in more oxygen. They, and because of their small size, um, when they're underground in a mine, um, they, if there's poisonous gas around, because of the double dosing of their oxygen, um, if there's poisonous gas, they're more likely to keel over much faster than a miner, which is why that we were taking canaries down coal mines. Uh, but it's a great example of a signal that helps us to dictate the trustworthiness of our environment. Um, the same can be true of, 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 of boxes. I mean, how do you know that a box is not tampered with its gloves? Well, the referee signs the tape. I mean, so it becomes a signal, a simple focal point of trustworthiness that we can see. Again, this otherwise unobservable information, whether or not a box has got ball bearings or plaster of Paris under its mitts, we, we, can, we can tell that from the signature of the referee, um, just as monarchs and Priests in bygones past used to sort of wax seal documents and you knew that actually something was awry if the seal was broken. So these are solutions that were found, these sort of single-minded signals um, that help us to um, determine, again, otherwise unobservable information. We see it in nature and we can start to see it um, around us. Now, we'll get into how signalling can be used in marketing in a bit. But before we do, I asked Sam for a a business example of signalling. He shares an example of signalling from a band, actually, the band Van Halen. And Van Halen came up with an interesting use of signalling. See, Van Halen, they tour around the world from stadium to stadium, night after night. But their shows have really complex lighting setups and audio rigs and heaps of technical instructions that need to be followed. They needed to make sure that the stadium teams who they'd work with on the night, that these teams were up to scratch. They'd never worked with these teams before in many cases, so they didn't have long to figure out if the team knew their stuff or not. So rather than spending hours quizzing them on their work and experience, they came up with a signal to gauge their expertise. They called this signal the No Brown M&M Clause. The the example is the band Van Halen um, had written into what's known as their rider, so their production sort of... um, sort of checklist every time they went on stage from guitar tuning to light setting production they had a sort of a a list of instructions um but to ensure that the production team sort of stuck to the stuck to the the rider they needed to create again a a clear signal of otherwise unobservable information um so they created what's sort of the no brown m&ms clause so basically, it was a request to have a bottle of M&Ms with all the brown M&Ms picked out of them. And they knew that when they went to their, their sort of the, the green room and there was a bottle of M&Ms with the brown M&Ms still in, it forced them to question, actually, well, what's the tuning like of our guitars? You I mean, if we've not followed this to the T, then maybe we can preempt any other challenges that we'll, we'll see in the future. So they've created, it, they've created their own observable signal, just like a canary keeling over when you're 100 metres underground is a really great signal that there's top toxic air around us if you find brown m&ms in a in a a, what is meant to be a 
you know, brown M&Ms, bowl of M&Ms, then it forces you to, um, to really question everything else around you. So how can us marketers use signalling in our work? Well, arguably all marketing is signalling to some extent, but Sam suggests that the best signalling can build trust with your customers. I asked him for an example, and he started telling me about a study by Dan Ariely, author of Predictably Rational. Here's Sam. Um, and it really stems also from a, a great example that Dan Ariely shares about a waiter in a restaurant. If you imagine you, we're in a restaurant and someone picks the lobster and the, the waiter says, oh, don't have the, the lobster. It's not, so, it's not so good and it's very expensive. Have the, have the chicken. Um, and you imagine sort of your, your, the degree of trust now that you have in the waiter's other recommendations is obviously skyrocketed because there's been a, there's been a cost to utility, right? The waiter could say, yes, of course, have the, have the lobster and, and, and follow it with this 1982 Shiraz. Um, and, and whether you, whether you sort of trust, trust in the waiter more. Telling your customers not to spend money with your company is an interesting tactic. It's probably not one you'd have suggested yourself. But as that example with the waiter illustrates, doing this can help build trust that the waiter or restaurant can cash in on later, either with repeat loyal customers or perhaps a bigger tip for the waiter. But surely a big business wouldn't do something like this, right? Well, no. Some businesses do. Octopus Energy, the renewable energy supplier in the UK, famously told competitors' customers who were looking to use Octopus not to switch to Octopus. That's right. They said to customers looking to buy their services, don't do it. At least not yet. Here's Sam explaining why that approach was so smart. Accepting or recommending or, or putting, putting ourselves in a position where there is cost to our own utility... Um, in, enhances trust. So for Octopus to recognise for their customers that actually it's really expensive to switch right now. I mean, so we're, t- we're telling people to stay with their existing customers through the winter and then when the time is right to switch, then we'll let you know, but now is not the time. You know, Octopus could say, no, 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 go for the lobster. Now is the, now is the time, but they didn't. They said, don't have the lobster, take the chicken, it's cheaper, we'll give you the, we'll give you the best season lobster next year when the time is right. And again, it's sort of two foreign worlds in, 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 in sort of um, home electricity and, and, and picking off a menu, but both are examples of, of cost to utility um, for, 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 for the offer, or the signaler. Um, and sometimes by, um, by through acts of, of generosity or, or, or sacrifice to utility, we can enhance trust. If you want to see that email from Octopus saying not to switch, you can do so in the show notes. It says, right now, energy prices are at record highs and most homes will be better off staying with their current energy supplier for the winter. Just like the honest waiter, this sacrifice acted as a powerful signal that Octopus wasn't there for short-term gain alone. It was an interesting approach, but you can see why it works. It signals that Octopus are trustworthy, that they won't hike up the price at the first opportunity, and having an energy supplier you can trust will definitely win over customers. It might be one of the reasons why Octopus was rated U-Switch Supplier of the Year for the last two years. So when done right, good signalling can become a keystone in a marketing campaign. And here's one example that I'll leave you with. In early 2018, the marketing team at Rockstar Games were discussing how to gain publicity for their new game, Red Dead Redemption 2. They knew that most potential customers won't spend hours looking at gameplay footage or listening to developer interviews, so they needed to highlight something specific that would signal how great the game is for those folks who just might only read a news article about the game. 
They wanted to hone in on one small detail to signal that the rest of the game would be high quality. And here's what they went with. Red Dead Redemption 2 will be so realistic, horses' balls will shrink in the cold. This is the real line they leaked to the press, and unsurprisingly, the press ate it up. Article after article was written about the size of the computer-generated horses' balls. This captured the attention of gamers across the globe, but importantly, it acted as a signal, just like the brown M&M claws, that showcased that the game's engine was so powerful and the graphics so realistic that the testicles of the male horses had been programmed to shrink in cold weather and expand in warm. Now, these articles highlighted an insignificant feature, but that feature became a powerful signal of the game's brilliance. It helped inflame interest and reinforce trust in the game's quality. This investment in one small feature signalled quality and an extraordinary dedication to craft. If they went into that much effort on one small feature, then gee, the rest of the game must be pretty great. All too often in marketing, we try to showcase everything brilliant with our product, but customers won't listen to all of that. They'll switch off. So take a leaf out of Red Dead's book and highlight something small that signals quality. All right, folks, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Nudge. I seriously recommend Sam's book, Evolutionary Ideas. It's a behavioral science classic. If you work in marketing, it's a must read. I've dropped a link to the book in the show notes, so do go and check it out. I'm excited to announce that Sam will be back on Nudge in a couple of weeks. This time he'll be talking about why we value things more when we see the effort that's gone into them. To make sure you don't miss that episode, follow me on Twitter. I'm P underscore Agnew, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm Phil Agnew. That's Phil A-G-N-E-W. You can also sign up to my newsletter. I'll send you an email every time a new show goes live. To do that, just click the link in the show notes and sign up. Okay, thanks for listening to this episode of Nudge.